Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And one thing I did kind of forget to say, too, is starting next week, um, we will have nursery and children's ministry again. So if you have been waiting for that, it's starting up again. If you're online paying attention for when that was going to start again, please come and join us next week. Again, we'll have um, nursery and children's ministry. Okay. Well, let's jump in. So in the summer this summer, we decided that we're going to do a different series every month kind of keep it fresh, keep it rolling, keep it moving. That way we're not locked into one series for, I don't know, like 15 million weeks, which is what I tend to do because I like to dig in and, and sit. So we're switching gears from our last series. I don't even remember what that was anymore. It's just so far in the past, right? And now we're, we're doing the Jesus Habits, okay? That's our, our series this month is the Jesus Habits. I want to start the series this way. Here's a quote. There's a guy named William Barclay. He was a Scottish minister Uh, He had a radio show. Uh, He wrote a series of commentaries on the New Testaments. I happen to own those, and they're one of my favorite commentaries to go to. That's how I'm familiar with him. But he said this, more people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. I'm going to say that one more time just to make sure that we heard that, okay? More people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. Now, something about this rings true to me. And I heard an amen. I saw some nodding heads. I think I'm not the only one that's probably resonating with that. See, Jesus isn't inter- uh, interested in transactional relationships, like give and take. He's interested in transformational relationships, Because if you can be argued one way, you can be argued the other way. If a theological argument is the only thing it takes to convince you of one thing, then a better theological argument can convince you to go the other direction. If you can be argued in, you can be argued out. But when you get into the trenches with people, when you really get down and dirty in the triumphs and the pains of life, that is when real transformation happens. You can memorize all the verses of the Bible but if it doesn't change your life, it means nothing. You can go to all the church services that you want, but if it allows you to cross the road and avoid the sick, the hurting, the orphan, and the widow, then it means nothing. You can be the loudest singer, you can know all the words to all the songs, but if those lyrics aren't written on your heart, then you're just a noisy, clanging gong. Jesus is interested in life transformation. He's interested in you coming to him and and, and then moving on in a whole different way. About 10 years ago, somebody gave me a book called The Jesus Habits. So the series that we're doing this month is born out of a book. Over the last decade, I've read the book a few times. I appreciate some of the ideas in the book. I don't know much about the author of the book. I did a quick Google search on him. Uh, before we did this series, mostly because I wanted to make sure there was no terrible things about the author that had happened in the news recently because it seems like everywhere we turn, that seems to be happening. The author is a a guy named Jay Dennist. He was a Baptist pastor. He's now retired uh, from Florida. I appreciate this book because it's a devotional book. He outlines 31 habits, which means you could do a habit a day And so if you're looking for a good devotional book, I do think this is a solid devotional book that you can use. We're not gonna do 31 habits because we're only doing this for July. So I've picked out five habits, building relationships, confrontation, listening, giving, and rest. So those will be the five habits that we're looking at this month. And I think those habits are habits that we can all probably jump into because Every single one of us 
can use a refresher on how to build relationships. Every single one of us can use a refresher on what it looks like to deal with confrontation in an actual positive manner, right? Especially in the world that we live in. I think we have lots of examples on how not to do confrontation right now. Um, so all of these, I think, are very applicable to us, whether you're old or young, employed or not employed, a student or retired, it spans all of the uh, spectrums. This morning, I wanna start by giving you a really practical list of the things that get in the way of building relationships. So if you have a bulletin, I stuck a little sheet of paper in your bulletin. And that's a list that I was hoping that you would take and you would keep and you could hang it on your fridge or your mirror, put it in your Bible, whatever it might be, uh, as something that can kind of remind you. After we go through that list of six things, then I wanna jump into a story from the life of Jesus that talks, like that, that shows Jesus building relationships then we're gonna watch a, a scene from The Chosen. So if you're familiar with The Chosen, we're gonna watch a scene from that, which excites me, I don't know about you. Uh, and then we're gonna finish the morning with some helpful hints on how to build relationships. This isn't gonna be the most preachy sermon I've ever given you, okay? I think it's gonna be a very practical sermon especially as we consider what it looks like to grow younger, especially as we consider what it looks like to invite new people to our church. We need to spend time talking about these sorts of things. And so if this isn't preachy enough for you, you guys can go watch a guy on TV do the preachy thing. This is what we need today, this morning, okay? There's plenty of those out there. Um, so check out your little sheet. If you, don't, if you didn't get it out yet, pull your little sheet out. I wanna talk about the enemies of the habit of building relationship. And if we're honest, I think there's a bunch of reasons why it is easier not to build relationships than to build relationships. And I wanna to touch on a few of those and see if they're true for you. Because I found that I resonate with quite a few of these. So the number one, past hurts. Past hurts. I don't need you to raise your hands, but just think for a second, how many of you have been hurt by a relationship in the past? Not necessarily romantic, let's say friendship. Any sort of friend that you've had in the past where you've been hurt. I think most of us would probably say, yeah, I have been hurt in a relationship before. And, and, and human beings, we are wired in such a way that we're pain adverse, all right? When we experience something that causes us pain, we do everything we can. We're wired in such a way that we avoid experiencing the painful thing again. Most of the time, there are exceptions. There are some people that are a little weird out there and they go for the pain, get it, but most of us are wired to avoid it. We even have a saying. Have you guys heard the saying, um, you gotta get back on the horse or you gotta get back on the bike, right? One of those two things. That we have such a saying built around this because if, you, if you're riding your bike and you wreck your bike or if you're riding a horse and you fall off, it's easier for us to never get back on the horse again. We want to avoid the chance of falling off the horse, right? So we have a saying in our culture, you got to get back on the horse because it means if you don't get back on the horse, you're going to build up how bad that fall was in your mind. How many people have had a car accident before? And how many people were like, oh, I don't know if I wanna get behind the wheel again. Just give me a little time. I'm not ready to, to get in the car again. I, I remember, um, my, so, well, I'll say this. Better story, new story. I bought a little dirt bike for my daughter, all right? And it has training wheels on it, so you can't tip it over. Um, but before the training wheels for the dirt bike came in the mail, I was too excited to get her on it. So I thought, I'm gonna take the training wheels off her bicycle and put them on the dirt bike, and then she'll ride it around the yard. And what I, what I didn't think was that the dirt bike was so much heavier than a bicycle, so when she took off on the dirt bike, as excited as she was, the training wheel just bent, and the dirt bike fell over, okay? Now, now I was right with her, so as she fell over, I scooped her, but it was still uh, scary enough that she didn't get on it again. She was too scared to get on this loud, motorized vehicle again. Now, a whole season went by. Winter went by, spring came, we're in the summer. She has real training wheels. I've been trying to convince her so long to get on it. We just had my son's birthday party and we had a dirt bike birthday party where his friends and cousins who have four wheels and dirt bikes came over to our house. We rode around the yard and my daughter saw some other kids that I let ride her dirt bike. And she decided, I wanna try again. So she got on that thing, 
And this was after the party, so everybody's gone. It's just us there. And she starts riding it around. She's doing great. I'm holding on to the seat. She says, Dad, you can let me go. I said, all right, sounds good. Again, she has training wheels. This girl got so brave, she had that throttle pegged every time she'd go around a corner. And finally, I kept telling her, you're going to have to slow down in the corner, slow down in the corner. Finally, she tipped it over. Training wheels and all. She went right over the handlebars, hit the ground. And I thought, oh, man, all that thing, you know, working so long to get her back on the bike. And she finally got back on, and now it's going to be done again. And she got up, and she said, Dad, I want to get back on. I was like, great, right? So she's still riding despite the little accident. But what I'm saying is it's so easy to build up in our mind the bad experience that we'll go through seasons before we ever try again. Now, that's just a little dirt bike with a little four-year-old. But all of us, whether you're 67 or 37 or 17, we've had those bad interactions with other people. And we build it up to be real bad in our mind. And we're like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to stay away from that. That isn't, that's something that just gets right in the way of building relationships, okay? Number two is pride. And I'm not going to, I mean, if you don't think that you deal with pride, I think we're all, then you're missing the mark. I think we all deal with pride, all right? Myself very much included. Um, this, is a, this is my struggle for sure. Pride says I'm not going to make the first move or I don't need anybody. I think if it wasn't for my wife, I'd be like a hermited, old, cranky miser living in a mountain somewhere saying, I don't need anyone. That's who I am really deep down. She brings out the better parts of me. Um, if, we, if we think that we can make it on our own, we're kidding ourselves, right? Um, often one of the things that we get stuck in in relationships is asking the question, who's going to make the first move? Which is a weird thing to get stuck in. We sort of, we sort of um, look down upon the person who makes the first move. Again, which is weird because if, if everybody bought into that and everybody said, I'm not going to make the first move, then nobody would make the first move and we'd have no new relationships. It's kind of a self-defeating prophecy here. But to think that there's a winner when you're not the person that reaches out first is quite silly. Pride says, I'm not making the first move. I'm not reaching out. Let them come to me. I don't need anyone. And those internal dialogues that we have are things that stand in the way of developing new relationships with people all the time. You do need someone. You need others in your life. You need community. You need people you can trust. You need people you can talk to. And you can't wait around until they always find you. You have to take the steps to find them almost all the time. Don't let pride stand in the way. Number three is prejudice. And uh, prejudice says, I'm not going to build a relationship with that person. It sort of singles out a person or a type of person. Every single person is prejudiced in some way, shape, or form. And I say the word prejudiced, and you might immediately be going to race, and I'm not talking about race. I'm saying we all have our prejudices. We all are raised in a certain way to think a certain way about a certain type of person. Right? And I don't know what that person is for you. We're all different generations, different ages, different parents. But there are people that we are raised around and we're made to think certain things about certain types of people. Okay? Um, here's an easy way to, to kind of pull this out of our lives a little bit, and it's, it's safe. School districts. Okay? There's always a certain type of type of person in school districts, right? Those Mannheim kids, they're something. Those E-Town kids, they're something. Those Donegal kids, they're something, right? That's an easy kind of safe way, but you're nodding your heads, you're smiling because you know that that's true. We're raised in a certain way to think a certain way about certain types of people. And maybe it is skin. Maybe it is the color of somebody's skin. Maybe it's the type of job that somebody has. Maybe it's where they hang out. Maybe it's what their family name is. Maybe it's what they smell like or look like or sound like, the kind of accent they have. Every single one of us has some kind of prejudice built into us by the world that we live in about the people that we live around. We tend, I mean, our brains work this way. We put things in boxes. That's how we organize things. We have to. And we tend to put people in certain types of boxes and then we don't want to open those boxes. 
So prejudice is one of the things that stands in the way of building relationships. Guilt is another one. And I think this is a really common one. As I talk to people, this is one that comes up again and again. Guilt is, I have said something or done something wrong against that person. This is the item from the past. This is the thing that makes you feel like you aren't worthy of a relationship because of something that you did. It works in two ways. You know you did something, and so you don't want to face the something that you did, and that makes you feel bad. Or you know you did something, and you wonder if the person you did it to hates you, and so then you won't talk to that person or people that know that person. Either way, if you have a goal of building relationships with people, if you're carrying around a heavy burden of past transgressions, it's gonna be really hard to build relationships. Number five is busyness. This is, I don't have time to build a relationship. It's the most common excuse that we have. It's the one that gets said more than any other excuse. I don't have time. Why don't you spend time with your family? Yeah, too busy. Could you be a mentor? Yeah, too busy. Can you volunteer? I don't have the time. Hey, we miss you at church. I know, I've just been really busy. Honey, can we take the kids to? Ah, I'm too busy. Well, hey, I, I hear this is going on in your life. When are you gonna take care of yourself? When I'm less busy. Right? Come on. How many of those things have come out of your mouth before? We use this excuse so often that it becomes our easy roll off the tongue excuse as to why we can't add a new relationship to our lives. And, and to be fair, some of our lives are really busy. But if it's so busy that you can't build new relationships, perhaps it's too busy. And that's a whole other thing for you to grapple with. Number six, the last one here on my list this morning is selfishness. And it says this, I'll have to give something up to build that relationship. And you know, that's true. I heard it once said before I got married, if you want to know how selfish you are, get married, right? And then when I got married, I heard it said, if you want to know how selfish you still are, have kids. And those are true. Anybody, anybody, whether you have kids or not, whether you're married or not, I think you can probably reasonably say, yeah, in order to get married, I have to give up something of my singleness. I have to compromise certain parts of what I want in order to go into a, a marriage, right? And to have kids, I have to give up something of a coupleness to incorporate a family and the things that the family may want. I hate amusement parks. I went to Disney a couple years ago, which is like the mecca of amusement parks. So if you don't like amusement parks, that's the worst place to go, okay? I, can, I manage to usually excuse my way out of Hershey Park, but when they go to Florida, I can't really excuse my way out of that, okay? There are things you have to give up when you have kids or when you get married. And if you start any new relationship, even be it here in a church, you enter into a small group with other people, you come for a Sunday school and you make a new friend, you go out and you have you know, the church picnic today, the, the love feast out at the pavilion, you, you decide to talk to some people you never talked to before. If you're here, you're not there. If you're doing this, you're not doing that. If you're doing that, you're not doing this. Relationships require us to give something up in order to have them, and so that's true. But the selfish part of us says, I don't wanna give anything up. I don't, I don't wanna do that. So those are the six things that, that the author outlines in this book and says these are the things that get in the way of building relationships. And I think that those are pretty wise and I think those are pretty applicable to us. Now I, I do wanna jump into, I wanna jump into scripture this morning. I wanna jump into a story from the life of Jesus that lets us watch Jesus build a relationship. Um, and, and, and to be fair, as I thought through which one to use, there are so many stories of Jesus building relationship. Whether it's, whether it's tax collectors or it's fishermen, um, it's Pharisees, it's, it, there's all sorts of types of people that I look at in the Bible and say, well, they're not good enough for some sort of reason. And yet Jesus takes the time to build relationship with them. And so as we think about what it looks like to build relationship with each other, or with new people in the community, or our neighbors, or our friends at work, 
I think Jesus provides us a pretty darn good example as to what it looks like to do it well. So, we're going to focus on a story that has to do with a Samaritan this morning. And if you're new to the church or you are new to Christianity in general, you might be asking the question, what is a Samaritan? And so I'm going to give you just a really brief rundown of what that is. I hope it's not too groundbreaking to say Jesus was Jewish. You guys know that, right? Okay, just making sure Jesus was Jewish, all right? Now, Judaism, Jewish, Judaism, and Samaritans, Samaritanism, are closely related just like Judaism and Christianity is, okay? Christianity came out of Judaism. Samaritanism also came out of Judaism. There was a time in the history of the, peop- the Jewish people that God's kingdom of Israel was divided into two, a north and a south. I think we can all relate to that probably because we live in a country that was once divided into a north and a south. And when it was divided, all sorts of things happened, like fighting and wars, battles, and judgment about the people who lived in the north or the people who lived in the south. And once again, I think we can relate to that as we think through our own history in this country. There are scriptures that tell us that the kings of, of Samaria and, and the, king, well, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, their entire lives were about warring with one another, and the goal was to conquer the other kingdom and bring them under the authority of whichever kingdom would win. That was the goal. So the Jews and the Samaritans were in battle, in war, and once they had divided north and south, the kingdom of the north changed the place that they worshiped. Now remember, sacrificial culture. Sacrifices have to be offered in a specific place, the temple. Well, once you divide the country up, now the people in the north no longer had access to the temple, which was in the south. So the people in the north, the Samaritans, changed where they worship. So no longer in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, but now on a place called Mount Gerizim. And by doing that, they no longer had to go into the southern kingdom to make their sacrifices. When the Babylonians, the Babylonians eventually conquer Samaria, many of the Samaritans marry their captors and have children with them. And the Jews begin to think of them as sort of a watered-down Jewish culture. They call them half-breeds or mixed. And they hate them for not being pure. Now tell me that still doesn't sound familiar. Okay. When the Jews return from their captivity, they seek to rebuild the temple, and the Samaritans come to help them. They offer aid to do this, and the Jews chase them away, calling them mixed and half-breeds, and will not let them help. So imagine generation after generation of fighting and war and tension and Uh, your your parents and grandparents kind of instilling that sort of generational hatred in you, and then you take that step of faith and say, look, we're going to help you rebuild, and then they say no, kind of slap you in the face and run you out because of who you are. By the time that Jesus is living, it has become very common for the Jews to go around Samaria, no matter how much longer it took, than to go through to cut time. It made more sense to them to go around Samaria than to happen to encounter a Samaritan because Samaritans were so terrible and so bad. Now, we don't have a ton of stories about Samaritans in the Bible, but one story has to do with a Samaritan that stops and helps an injured person. I hope that you're familiar with that one to a certain extent. With that history, does it make more sense why it's so unthinkable that a Samaritan would stop and help a Jew who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead? Well, that's not our story for today. Our story for today comes from John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you like to read your Bible, you want to jump into it, feel free to open to John chapter 4. I'm going to get it on the screen for you, though, too, so you can follow along that way. And this is the story of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Again, it's a pretty well-known story for us, but I hope that it's one that we can jump into today and get some new things out of it. So I'm starting with John chapter 4. I'm starting at verse 4. It goes like this. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, 
near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then in parentheses it says, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food, which is sort of nice that the Bible tells us why the disciples aren't around. And, and, and side note, history, church history, tells us that this woman's name is Fatina. So just so you're aware, this isn't just a random Samaritan woman that goes unnamed forever. Church history tells us that she becomes a saint of the church, Saint Fatina. So that's, that's her name. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then again in parentheses, for the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So it begins to make a bit more sense, right? You can see that the standard of the day was for Jews and Samaritans not to associate with each other. But here's the thing, this Samaritan is also a woman, which may not mean anything special to you and I here and now today in 2022. But in this day and age, a woman had no power or authority when talking to a man, when dealing with a man, none of it. It was a patriarchal society, which meant that men ruled the society. And it would have been pretty improper for Jesus to be talking with a woman alone. If the disciples had been nearby, had seen this going on, quite honestly, the disciples may have been very disappointed in Jesus. So you have all the dynamics of a man talking to a woman, but now, also think of it this way, Jewish man and Samaritan woman with all we just talked about. So there's a lot of dynamics at play here. There's a lot at stake. It makes sense why Fatina is quite surprised that Jesus talks to her at all. I'm starting in verse 10 here. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and livestock? Let's pause there for a second to remind you that, that Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So as we think through the Bible characters that we may have heard in Sunday school growing up, or maybe little ditties we know like Father Abraham, that little song, Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Jacob has an older brother named Esau. Jacob stole the blessing, the firstborn blessing from Esau by dressing up like Esau. Jacob wrestles an angel and then is given a new name, Israel, which is the name of the kingdom of of God. So Jacob was a common ancestor for Jesus and Fatina, right? For the Jews and the Samaritans. This is before the split. So they've gone back to common ground. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So he told her, Go, call your husband and come back. Now, there's sort of like two conversations that are happening here at the same time. Um, there is this conversation where Jesus is absolutely, very clearly, and with our hindsight, we know this, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about what he as the Messiah is bringing to all people everywhere. But Fatina also is understanding this, that Jesus is offering her some kind of special water that means she's not gonna have to come back to the well again. Because the reason that she's at the well in the middle of the day is because no one wants to be around her. She's been rejected by everybody, okay? We're about to find out why, okay? They don't like her, so they're not gonna be around her. So in the hottest part of the day, when nobody else would come to the well, that's when Fatina comes to the well. And now she meets a guy, yeah, he's a Jew, but he's saying, there's a type of water that you can get that means you'll never be thirsty again. Well, that would be so awesome, right? So she's like, I want that water. Well, Jesus also knows, I, you gotta deal with a man though. You know, this is a transactional sort of thing. So go get your husband. Well, we're gonna find out where that goes in a second. 
But let's not pretend that Jesus doesn't know where this is going to go, okay? So let's pick it up here. Verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. So again, two conversations happening. There's this salvation conversation. There's this metaphorical living water. And then there's this real conversation about water happening at the same time. And I think they're slowly becoming onto the same page. So much so that now Fatina realizes that this isn't just any guy. Verse 19, she says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now, again, can you see how our context helps? Can you see how knowing the history and the context of what's going on actually helps us understand that we don't have to just glaze over this verse where Fatina starts talking about how we worship in one place and other people worship in another place. It's so easy in the Bible when we read a verse like that, we have no idea what's going on, we just glaze right by it. But knowing just a little bit about what's going on in history and how they have two places of worship, and that's one of the main reasons that they're always fighting, this is what she's referencing. Verse 21, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Now, the thing that we have to know about the Samaritans and the Jews is that the Samaritans and the Jews shared scripture. Now, the Samaritans didn't have as many of the scriptures that the Jews had. They'd sort of tossed out the poetry and a number of other, what we would call books, but they would call scrolls. So they didn't have quite the whole collection that the Jews had. So Jesus is sort of explaining some of the missing pieces to her, but she's also saying, look, I'm a believer. I believe that the Messiah is gonna come someday, and when he comes, he's gonna answer the questions. He's gonna explain everything to us. He's gonna make all this happen. And so now Jesus, up to this point in his ministry, he's kept this a big secret. Everybody that he heals, everybody that he touches, everybody that realizes who he is, he says, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody that I'm Messiah. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Keep it a secret. Okay, don't tell anybody. But here, at this well, with the Samaritan, with this person that the Jews are supposed to hate, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says in verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? I, I think the Bible is so fascinating. I think it's so funny. There's like this silly conversation is recorded for all of history. Like, eat something. I've already eaten. Does he have other kinds of food somewhere that we don't know about? Like, what do we need? All? I just think it's so human. I love how these people come off the page sort of alive. Jesus says in verse 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And we'll close that story there. 
The end of the passage is something that we often don't look at because the story about Fatina is kind of done. She, she ran off. She dropped the water jug. She ran off to town to kind of declare, I met the Messiah. And that's where the story closes. So when we tell the story, that's where we stop. But at the end, there's this really important paragraph. And we get through the weird conversation about food to find this important thing. The important thing here is that Jesus says this. He goes, don't you guys have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? Right? It's sort of this saying that's like, ah, we got time. Still four months until harvest. Um, how many people have a garden? Anybody? Garden? Am I like the only one to have a garden? I, I have a garden. All right. I, I'm growing corn this year. I had a terrible crop of corn last year. I did a terrible job. This year I'm excited. And anybody know the saying, uh, knee high by July? Yeah? Okay. My corn is knee high. I'm very excited. I'm on track. It's July. It's knee high. Things are going well. Um, but if I were to go out there right now and try and pull corn off, I wouldn't get any, right? It's not time to harvest yet. It's too early to harvest. So I might be talking to my wife, looking at the garden and going, you know what? It's still four months to harvest, right? We got plenty of time. There's no rush on this. There's plenty of time. The, the Jews had kind of gotten into the same sort of habit of being like, oh, there's plenty of time. Or, or another way of saying it would be, it's not ready yet. If I looked at my corn right now, I would say it's not ready yet. The Jews are looking around at who the Messiah is coming to. And who's the Messiah coming to? The Jews, right? That's what they've been thinking this whole time. That's what they've been praying for for generation and generation. The Messiah is going to come to us. And they're thinking it's not time yet. It's not ready yet. And Jesus this whole time, as people have realized who he is, he said, shh, don't tell anybody. It's not time yet. And then Jesus is standing here after talking with the Samaritan woman at the well in a place where the disciples probably have never gone, in Samaria, okay? They're there in a place where they're not supposed to be talking with people they're not supposed to talk with. And Jesus says, look around. You guys have been saying this whole time, it's not time yet. It's not ready yet. But I'm telling you, look around. The fields are ready for harvest. The harvest is ready in a place you weren't expecting, in a place you didn't think I was coming, in a place that I had to bring you to, this is where the harvest is ready. The work has been done. Someone else has been doing the work. They sowed. Guess what, disciples? You get to reap. How lucky are you that you didn't have to do the work of sowing? You get to reap. Now, why does that matter? Because as we look around the world today, there are so many places where we can get on our high horse and say, they're not ready. Where our pride gets in our way and we say, that person over there, them, they're not ready. And guess what? We may be so wrong. Because seeds have been sown, work has been done, and our job is not to be the sower, it's to be the reaper in some situations. We get to go in and reap all the benefits of somebody else who sowed the seeds. Sometimes we get to sow the seeds. Sometimes we get to be a part of the harvest. It's not my job to judge somebody as to whether they're ready or not. It's not my job to take a whole group of people and say, they've got it all wrong and they're not ready. They may be way closer than you think. And this passage, I mean, Think about the differences in approach and theology between the Jews and the Samaritans. They don't even have the same temple. The Samaritans made their own temple because the Jews wouldn't let them help. They have taken whole books of the Bible and tossed them out, what we would call books of the Bible. They're so far apart, and yet Jesus is saying, guys, the work has been done in this place and they are ready for harvest. And if we were to read on, we would find out that Jesus goes and spends days in the Samaritan village and tons and tons and tons of people come to know him and follow him. It's ripe, often where we don't think it is often where we're afraid to go, often where our pride won't let us go, often where our judgment says they're not ready. And yet Jesus is sitting here telling them, guys, I feel so full because she's just the tip of the iceberg. You see how excited she is? Let's go to the village. Let me show you what's about to happen. A couple things to consider about this story before we watch our clip from The Chosen. Jesus had to lay aside generations of prejudice in order 
to engage with a Samaritan woman. Now, it's Jesus, so you might think, well, I mean, it's, it's a son of God, right? I'm sure he can lay aside prejudice. The Samaritan woman, in many ways, had to do the same thing in order to engage in conversation. The disciples had to do the same thing to enter into Samaria. Jews and Christians read this story alike, and we both come to the conclusion that racism was laid aside here. The reason that racism was laid aside is because there's no room for racism in the kingdom of God. Jesus makes that clear because Jesus lays aside racism. Because he makes it clear that there's no room for racism in the kingdom of God, then there can be no room for racism in our hearts. And I know that that might sound like not new information, like, Nick, why are you saying this? Because the world that we live in, we need to keep saying it. There are certain things that there is absolutely no place for in the kingdom of heaven. This issue of race is one of them. There is no room for racism in the kingdom, so there must not be room for it in our hearts. It's, it's likely that Jesus, and definitely the disciples, had negative past experiences with Samaritans, just by the product of growing up where they grew up. Probably arguments, they may have spit at each other, they may have gotten into fights at some point, it would have been so much easier to go around the Samaritans, as was the custom to do so. But instead of going around, they went directly to the people they weren't supposed to like or get along with. And that is a powerful statement if you let it be. You can glaze over that if you want. But I'm telling you, if you glaze over that, you're missing out on something huge in the story. The disciples and Jesus went right to the people that they weren't supposed to like, or get along with. Jesus is God on earth. How much easier would it be for God to constantly hold his pride and say, well, let all those people come to me. If they want a relationship with me, let them come to me. And could we really fault God for his imperfect and as, as much as we get it wrong most of the time for a God who is perfect and so mighty and all, no, whatever you want to use to describe God, to say, you know what, I'm done going to them. Let them come to me. Hard to blame God for that. And yet, God doesn't do that. Constantly, Old Testament, New Testament, across the scriptures, we find story after story of God going to people, of drawing people to him, of when, of when they get lost. He runs after the lost sheep of the prodigal son, of when the prodigal son is away, the father waiting for the son to return, and when the older son doesn't go in, he goes out to the older son. I mean, story after story after story, we find this God who continues to come to us, who pushes the pride piece aside and says, you know what? The Samaritans, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the lepers, the Pharisees, all of those people who we write off and say they're not good enough, they are my people and I will go to them. We often, in our little human minds, say, I'm not going to them. Let them make the first move. I'm better than them. Let them make the first move. Fine, do it, but don't call it Christian. Don't call it Christ-like. Don't call it a God thing because it's not. Because God comes to us over and over and over again. Now, the last thing I'm going to point out is busyness. The story in John 4 starts with a saying. The saying goes like this. Jesus had to go through Samaria. And if you want to go back and look again, you can see that the word there is had. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? I'm sure it was faster to travel through than go around, but Jesus stops and talks to the Samaritan woman, and then he goes down to the, her village. So whatever time he would have saved by going through, I'm sure he spent. So why? Because Jesus is on a mission. He's on a mission. The whole time he's doing his ministry, Jesus is on a mission. And his mission is to bring people to know him, to know Father God, to, to provide eternal life for everyone. That mission is going to ultimately lead him to Jerusalem and to the cross at some point, to execution, death, and resurrection. Jesus is on a mission for the three years that he's doing his ministry. And we might say it's the best mission that anybody could ever have. If there was ever a reason to be busy... That's a, that's a pretty good reason, right? And yet, Jesus doesn't let busyness get in the way of stopping and talking to this 
woman. Jesus had a lot of balls to juggle during his time on earth, just like you and I do. We think about it, what kind of balls do you guys juggle every day? We juggle things like uh, work, keep that ball in the air, family, keep that one going. Let's add in spirituality and health and friends, and now we have a whole bunch of balls that we're juggling, right? The thing is, what we often don't realize is that not all the balls are the same. That work ball, that's rubber. So if you drop it, it's going to bounce. And you might say, well, Nick, I might lose my job if I drop that ball. That's true, you might. But I'm pretty sure you can find another one. And right now, we happen to live in a day and age when there's way more jobs than there are people to fill them. So I guarantee you can find another job if the worst case scenario happens and you lose your job. But likely, you've got one, two, or three chances before you lose your job if you drop that work ball. But those other balls, your spirit, your health, your family, your friends, see, those ones aren't rubber. They're made of glass. And when you drop those, they can get scuffed or scratched. They can crack, chip, sometimes shatter. And what we often do is we get it mixed up in our head. And we think that the glass ball is work. And we do everything we can to protect that ball. And we'll let the other ones bounce over and over and over and over again. We'll choose the work ball over our health, our friends, our family, our spirit, over God, over others. What we have to do is think about our priorities. We have to consider which of those balls that we're juggling are fragile, that we do need to pay attention to. Jesus didn't let his God-given mission stop him from taking time with this woman. In fact, we might even say that Jesus' God-given mission was to take time for this woman, right? Would you say that? That really was his mission all along. Not just to get to the cross, but every single person along the way, right? So if we're willing to say that about Jesus, if we're willing to cut Jesus some slack in that way, how come we don't do that for ourselves? How come when that person that you drive by has a flat tire and you feel like, I should really stop and help him, but I'm gonna be late to that doctor appointment if I do, you drive by? How come when you drive through the square in E-Town and see a homeless man standing out asking for help, it's easy to roll your window up and drive by and stop and give him a couple bucks or ask him if he can take him to McDonald's? Because for some reason, we bought into the idea that our mission is to be on time to whatever appointment we're going to. And we've lost sight of the fact that our real mission is the people that God has put in our path over and over and over again. And if we're gonna be a church that makes a difference in each other's lives, and dare I say, the community in which we exist, we need to get our priorities right. I want to show you the chosen clip because I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I picture and imagine the stories in the Bible. And I've never seen anything quite like the chosen that brings those stories to life in such a neat way. Um, and the chosen did in my, the chosen, by the way, if you don't know, is a, is a television series. You can get it for free. Uh, if you go to your app store and download the Chosen app, there's places to watch it online for free. They're currently filming season three. The scene I'm about to show you is from season one, so if you haven't seen it before, <laughs> I only blame you. It's, I'm not giving you a sneak peek here. But they did the story of the woman at the well, and they just did the most fantastic job that I've ever seen in my entire life with the story. So I want to show it to you and let it capture your imagination, let you see what it looks like when Jesus approaches this woman, and then we'll, we'll close down. If you've not seen The Chosen, I do highly recommend it. It's definitely worth your time, and it gives a picture of all of these stories that we cherish and love so much, and it brings them to life in a whole different way. But, and I'm actually, I'm just gonna scrap the rest of what I had for this morning. I just wanna say this. That scene has always been so powerful to me because when I was growing up, 
one of the things that I often heard was that <clears throat> this was good news. Right? Maybe you heard that too. That's what we called this. We have things like good news clubs for little boys and little girls to go to and learn about it. But we called that good news. And the fact of the matter is, for much of my life, it sure hasn't felt like good news. I haven't seen it presented like good news. I've seen it used in terrible ways and like a weapon against people all the time. And in that scene, as I watch Jesus interact with Fatina, you can see everything change for her when she hears good news. It's, it's real, honest to goodness good news. And when I think about spending time in the community, when I think about new people coming to our church, when I think about getting up here in front of you, I would love nothing more than to be the person who gets to give you good news. I hope that you also see the power of good news and that it's something that you want to give people as well. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter who they are, everybody deserves to hear good news. Everyone deserves to hear the good news. Everyone deserves to meet Jesus. Every single person. And that is the basic of our call. That is why we gather together. I hope that's why you come here. So that when you leave here, you can be the bearer of good news. You can be the messenger of good news. You can deliver that to the people all through your life. Guess what? All the things that you thought were tied up in it, mountains and temples and whatever you've tied yourself up in knots with, Jesus says it, it's gone. That's, it's done. It's about the heart. It's about spirit and about truth. Amen? Let me pray for us. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.